Are you looking to become a tier one operator in the gaming world? Elevate your games with Black Sight Studio Terrain. Welcome to another exciting episode of the SITREP Podcast. We are excited to be back with you. Uh, currently in studio is myself and Jim. Hello, everybody. How you doing? And then uh, we're hoping Ralph will be jumping on shortly. And Chris is celebrating Canadian Thanksgiving. So he is unavailable to record today. Someday I'll have to have him explain to me Canadian Thanksgiving. Um, there was a YouTube video showing the difference between American Thanksgiving and Canadian Thanksgiving. And I think there was a difference in beer and football or something. I don't remember. But we'll have to have him explain that to us one of these days. Well, yeah, I don't know if, if Canadian football technically counts as football. Oh, no. There's going to be a war across the border now. You want guys want to see modern warfare, we might have just kicked it off. <laughs> Pun intended. Just doing my part. <laughs> Anywho. Uh, so hopefully Ralph will join us and he can give us some news updates because he's uh, our kind of our news person. Um, so in the meantime, Jim, um, let's talk about what we did. I know I'm kind of reversing the order, but I thought maybe we'll just catch okay. up on this first. Uh, you and I, over the last week or so, have been playing our salute to the 75th anniversary of Operation Market Garden. Uh, so you created... Uh, a scenario using the Valorant Victory system of Nine Megan, more specifically crossing the Vol River uh, by Major Cook and you know elements of the 82nd, uh, the 504th, and the 307th Engineers. So we started on last Sunday, a uh, week ago Sunday, at the time of this recording, and we finished up on Thursday night. Um, so do you know what the total play time was for that the entire game? Uh, well, there was a little bit of uh, background information that was given out uh, mm -hmm. on Sunday and whatever. Uh, the stream was 4.45, and then I think it was another uh, three hours on Thursday. So technically it would be eight hours, but we weren't really playing all that time. There right. was a lot of uh, recap and you know talking about this. I would estimate the game time for that, and it was a rather large Valorant Victory scenario. Valorant Victory normally plays in one to two hours tops. Uh, three, if it's a big game and it's with all my modern stuff that I add to it for, you know, casualty evacuation, prisoners of war, um, you know, modern weapons like helicopters and so on. But this was obviously World War II, so we were using Barry Doyle's native system. We were just using it, you know, plus an order of magnitude because I wanted to do the whole assault. Uh, and we wound up, I would say, about six hours of actual uh, dice chucking. And I'll um, tell you what, it did not feel like six hours. I mean, it felt like it the pace was good and it was 
you know, from beginning to end for me, not only, you know, with background and learning some more history about the event itself, but the actual gameplay, it was very smooth and it did not seem like six hours. It seemed like it went a lot faster than that. Yeah, that's always the, uh, that's always the goal. Uh, you know, you want like a good movie, you know, you want your players to, uh, leave the movie theater, so to speak. And like, Holy crap, it's dark outside. How long were we in there? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, like, you know, they say in Las Vegas, there's a reason there's no clock on the wall in the, uh, in the casino. Yeah. Um, if you can get that effect in a war game, then, you know, Hey, you're doing something right. Yeah. So for those who don't know about this, uh, particular battle, um, or we're not part of the stream, can you give us a, background on it okay uh so super fast um operation market garden was undertaken by the allies in september of 1944 it came on the end of the dash across france which followed the uh, final collapse of german defenses uh, in normandy so the allies landed in normandy and despite all the successes of, you know, the famous June 6th, 1944, longest day, uh, despite all those successes, the Germans were able to actually contain in the Bokash country uh, for quite a while, like like almost two months, um, the Allies in a relatively small pocket. Um, the Americans were getting very badly hung up on Saint-Lô, and the British were very badly getting hung up over at Caen. And um, things weren't really moving very far or very fast at all. Casualties were out through the roof. You know, half the British or um, half the French countryside was just leveled. The towns over there were just erased off the map. And then when things finally did break loose with Operation Cobra in late July, I think it was 25th, 1944, um, that pretty much unhinged the German defense. And once that happened, the Allies were able to kind of collapse both wings of that containment pocket, close the trap at a place called Falaise, wipe out most of German 15th and 7th armies, and that was pretty much the end of the German army in France. Mm -hmm. There was some smaller action going on down in the south against, I think it was the German, uh, they called it the 19th Army, but yeah, it wasn't really an army. Uh, Operation Dragoon, the landings in southern France to push up to the Swiss and Italian borders, but pretty much the rest of... France was empty and was considered or comparatively empty. So we have the, the fall of Paris in very short order, the rush to the Saône River all the way through, you know, Champagne country, all the way through Flanders. And they got all the way to pretty much the German border, uh, the Belgian, Dutch and German borders, you know, almost in a snap. And this led to a great deal of overconfidence among the allied commanders where the general mood was, okay, we had our really big battle in Normandy. Then the Germans imploded the Russians are coming through Poland at this time. You know, what's left? I mean, look at how fast we just conquered the other 95% of France. Yeah. It's a, you know, two months to get through the first 5% of France, the other 95% of France they did in barely two weeks. Um, it was pretty much as fast as the tanks could go. And uh, they said, okay, look, before the Germans get it, number one, there was a bit of overconfidence. Let's, the Germans are beat. Let's just kick the door down into Germany and, you know, end the war by Christmas. Even those that were more cautious sort of had the idea that, look, the Germans are off balance now. For God's sake, let's hit them while they're off balance. Because if the weather sets in and they manage to get some reserves going and they set up behind the Rhine River, what's left of the Siegfried Line, all these West Wall defenses, we're going to have a hell of a fight in the beginning of 45. So both the cautious, of course, famously, the, um, the very... Um, overconfident people get all the blame, but even the cautious people were pretty much supporting this, this operation um, for kind of the opposite reason, but they arrived at the same place. They're like, look, the Germans are not beat yet. 
This is the part you don't hear about too much of the movies. The Germans are not beat yet. For God's sake, let's hit them. You know, let's strike while the iron's hot. Mm-hmm. So Market Garden was an attack uh, in the northern part of Europe. Uh, so, so the line is basically along the border of France at this point. I'm being very basic here. And um, the Allies say, okay, look, we can either assault across the Rhine River in this broad frontal general offensive straight into Germany. We can invade Germany the old-fashioned way. Or we can try to kind of kick down the side door, so to speak. And uh, the route that was chosen was through southern Holland. And um, there's a lot of rivers in Holland, a lot of canals, a lot of other water obstacles. It is Holland, after all. Half the country's underwater. But uh, the British kind of came up with this plan where they identified a bridge over the Rhine River that they can get to at a place called Arnhem. They can drop uh, British paratroopers there. They can drop other American paratroopers at other stops along the way. That's 101st at Eindhoven, generally speaking, and the 82nd at Nijmegen, generally speaking. And what they're going to do is they're going to set up a series of um, bridgeheads by air troops, or by air mobile troops, airborne troops, leading toward this bridge. It's like 60 miles behind uh, German lines. Now, these guys are dropped, in some cases, up to 60 miles behind German lines. This is way down, you know, way more ambitious than Normandy was. Um, I think the furthest airborne landings in Normandy were at most like 10 miles from the beaches. We're going like 60 miles behind the German lines in this case. Uh And they said, okay, so we're going to lay these troops down with airborne drops, and then we're going to punch a hole with a, a, a British formation called 30 Corps. Um, it's a group of uh, British armored and mechanized divisions, and we're going to try and kick the door down and go through these areas that the airborne troops have have pre-captured, so to speak, connect the dots, and and pretty much create a corridor that leads around the main German defenses, captures this bridge, and then you know now we have a side door into Germany. The idea was to end the war, you know, as they say in the movie. The longest day. The idea is to end the war in less than a hundred days and get the you know pretty much be in Berlin by Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, it didn't work, uh, and there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but we won't get into that. Specifically for this game, we were looking at one of those airborne operations, um, or I should say the aftermath of the airborne operation, where 82nd Airborne was sort of the second stage. So 101st Airborne was the first stage. 30 Corps reached them pretty easily. They had a much tougher time reaching the 82nd at Nijmegen. And then they tried like hell to sort of reach the, the third stage. That's British 1st Airborne and the Polish Paratrooper Brigade at uh, Arnhem itself. And they didn't quite make it. And the hence, hence Operation Market Garden was overall a failure. But this battle we were doing yesterday was part of that second stage. So 82nd Airborne had dropped uh, four days ago. They took a bunch of the bridges in their area, but one bridge they weren't able to take was over a large river in southern Holland called the Vaal, W-A-A-L. And there was a series – now nowadays there's three bridges there. At the time, there were only two. There was a railroad bridge to the west and a road bridge to the east. And the idea was to take that railroad bridge as fast as possible. Um, the paratroopers were not able to do it until the British arrived with tanks. Um, the good news for the paratroopers is that now they have, you know, a lot of firepower to support them with the British tanks there. The bad news is, is that the paratroopers are late. They're supposed to already have that bridge because the the tanks are supposed to drive over the bridge and keep going to Arnhem. So they say, okay, how how are we going to fix this? We have to take that railroad bridge as soon as possible. And, um, I don't often recommend movies because I think they're usually, um, you know, historical poison, but the movie, uh, they usually, they usually are, Yeah. but this is, but this is one of the relatively good ones. Um, a bridge too far 
we have uh, Robert Redford playing uh, Major Julian Cook. And he is tasked with, okay, the British tanks are going to support you. British and Irish tanks are going to support you from our side of the river. You cross the river about two kilometers northwest of the bridge um, under incredible German fire. And then land on the other side of the river, turn back toward the bridge. And what we'll do is we'll assault the bridge from two sides at once. It's usually the best way to take a bridge. If you can take the bridge before the Germans blow it up, we'll own a bridge. The plan actually wasn't that bad because the assault was supposed to happen at night under a thick smoke screen. The problem was there were all these you know, delays with getting the boats there. And when the boats did arrive, they were pretty much garbage. I wouldn't want to go fishing in one of these boats. Yeah. Uh, you know, much less, um, you know, try to assault a German-held, you know, riverbank with them. And uh, so one delay followed upon another delay upon another delay. And they don't attack until I think it's like 3 p.m. the next afternoon or something like that, broad daylight. The smokescreen doesn't work, and they take, you know, incredible losses going across the river. Uh, but historically, the attack did succeed. Uh, they took uh, pretty heavy losses. That was uh, 3rd Battalion, 504th. Uh, parachute infantry regiment backed up by you know as you were saying you know um company c of 307th airborne engineers um they were up against kampf group of reinhold i think um along with other like scrap german units that were trying to hold northern nijmegen and lent is the name of the town on the other side of the river um and then the um the grenadier guards sort of assaulted the bridge from the other side along with i think it's second uh second battalion 505th parachute infantry regiment and yeah, that pretty much uh, took the bridge. The Germans did have demolitions set to blow the bridge. Uh, for one reason or another, they did not work. Um, some say the wires were cut by our artillery bombardment. Some say the paratroopers cut some of the wires. Uh, Dutch sources say that there is a Dutch resistance fighter responsible for cutting a lot of the wires. Um, it's probably a combination of all three. Uh, but for one reason or another, the, the charges did not go off and the Allies were able to capture that bridge intact. And that opened up the rest of uh, the Nijmegen area, the town of Lent, other areas of Nijmegen. Um, the road bridge would fall certain would fall shortly afterwards. I think that bridge was assaulted by, uh, not nearly as dramatically, but it was assaulted by um, another battalion or regimental commander. Uh, I recognize the name. He's John Wayne's character from The Longest Day. Vanderhoof? Um, yeah, that's the same. Yep. Uh, he's he's still in the war, and he is he he's I think responsible or involved with the assault of the road bridge another couple of kilometers further to the east. But once both these bridges are taken, and uh, there's a lot more fighting in Nijmegen, but the idea is to then to push forward, get to Arnhem, and finish that one, two, three. You know, connect the dots, um, and, and unite all these three um, bridgeheads by paratroopers. And uh, that's where the plan finally did run out of steam. It was behind schedule from the start. Uh, it was an unrealistic plan. It was way too complicated, had way too many moving parts. Plans have to be kind of simple because when things go wrong, as they inevitably do, you have to be able to adjust and compensate and improvise. And when the plan gets that tightly wired together, um, it's, yeah, it's not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, overall failure for Market Garden. However, the Vol River assault is considered a success. The Dutch currently have a big, uh, you know, monument there. There's still an association for it. Uh, the 82nd Airborne calls it Little Omaha uh, because you know of the losses and the and the, the very you know difficult fight both crossing the river and then on the bank on the far side. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we saw a little bit of that in our game. Uh, I think your losses were pretty steep. Yeah. Yeah, why don't you yeah. give us a summary of, you know, can you do a recap <coughs> of the game for those people? 
Um, well, we uh, a normal Valorant victory game is six turns. Um, when I was designing this game, uh, I didn't design the game. The game is Barry Doyle's, obviously. But when I was designing this scenario, we were going for a very, uh, maybe not very, but a, a historical approximate, you know, a historically approximate, you know, on the Ariskany level. Uh, we, we were going for like 90% uh, as far as how accurate it was. And so the board was very, very large compared to what a Valorant Victory table usually looks like. Valorant Victory map sheet is six hexes by 12 hexes, and you normally combine maybe two, maybe th maybe three in a big game. We had, I can't remember how many hexes it was. It was big. Yes. It was really big. Um, but, you know, these hexes are a certain size, and uh, it was... Um, we were going for the to, to sort of recreate the 1.2 miles, just short of two kilometers, that we were uh, between the um, Thurbertine 504th's landing zone and the um, the north foot of that bridge. So you know hexes are rough. You know depending on how you play Valorant Victory, hexes are usually up to usually the max 50 meters across. So I needed 40 hexes between those two. Again, a normal Valorant Victory board is six by 12. This had to be like 40 by 20. So it was like eight or nine Valorant Victory boards together. Um, what that did for our game time was I said, okay, look, instead of uh, six turns, let's have eight turns. And um, yeah, eight turns was the limit. And uh, you reached the foot of the bridge on turn seven and then assaulted across the bridge from the German side back toward the British side uh, on turn eight. And I think on your assault phase on turn eight, you barely managed to take uh, that last objective hex. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, well, you didn't barely manage to take it. I mean, the, the assault was, was kind of a joke by that point, but you did it in the nick of time, I should say. Because um, there was only like a, like a German... 20 millimeter flat crew over there and like some mortars or not even that some gun crews, like one, one Lieutenant. Um, yeah. And you came across with uh, major cook who by then had become Valorous. We can talk about that later. <laughs> <laughs> Along with half the U S army. I couldn't believe how many Valorous roles. We, <laughs> game. Um, we even had an SS guy become Valorous. Yeah, I couldn't believe. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, the, 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 the jaws closed right on the very end. It didn't go exactly according to history. Um, sometimes people look at historical wargaming, especially really historical wargaming, and they're like, what's the point? All you're really doing is recreating what happened. This is a reenactment. This isn't a game. And I don't know if I really agree with that uh, when people say that. Um, and I think the devil's in the details. I think when people say that, they don't, they're not familiar enough with the historical material or they're not familiar enough with the game that they're talking about. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, they don't see that, no, this, you know, okay, the Americans won. It's just like history. No, it, <laughs> there's a little more to it than that. Right. Uh, I think your I think your Americans took even more losses than um, Cook did originally, but they did better in some ways than the than Cook did historically, because historically, Hook, uh, I'm sorry, Cook reached the northern part of the bridge and kind of met the Grenadier Guards coming the other way, more or less on the bridge. Here, the British uh, did not manage to break through those defenses. Um. And part of that is because, you know, Julian Cook sort of took a pause, regrouped his forces, and didn't cross that phase line on the north bank of the river that triggered the British forces, or activated the British forces, I should say, mm -hmm. Grenadier Guards in Nijmegen Town itself on the southern part of that bridge. And so they kind of got a late start. But um, 
yeah, they didn't get on the bridge at all. It was up to Major Cook and all, you know, to capture all the bridge. Major Cook wound up having to take both sides of the bridge himself, albeit always from, you know, the German side. So, you know, half in one hand, you know, six dozen in the other, or what? No, I'm sorry, I didn't say that right. Six in one hand, half dozen in the other. Um, the game did have the same general outcome as uh, we saw historically, but in the details, no, it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't really the same at all. Um, the Americans overperformed uh, and paid for it, and the British underperformed. And uh, although that might not be entirely the British tanker's fault, uh, the special rule we had set up was there as part of the battlefield activates once the paratroopers cross a certain phase line on the northern bank of the canal. And um, you took a turn to sort of, um, rather than just like, you know, did sprint from landing zone up the bank, uh-huh. you took a turn and you sort of like pulled, which I think was the best move. Um, you took a turn and you sort of like regrouped uh, some of your forces. You went up, you had to take that 88 on your northern flank. You took that, uh, that small German fort on your northern flank. Uh, Fort uh, Van der Holland or whatever the name of it is. Um, some of those positions were actually taken by follow-on forces, namely George Company uh, 304th. I'm sorry, uh, 504th. Uh, but you took them anyway. But that did mean that it was like one turn late, maybe two turns late for the assault on the bridge itself. You still made it in time, but it meant that those British tanks didn't uh, jump off until one or two turns after I sort of expected them to. And as a result, they had a bit of a tough time uh, on the sub, on, on the South Bank. Um, they took no losses. Uh, our friend Bofi, uh, one of the German <laughs> commanders, hit a uh, hit a Sherman with a Panzerschreck twice, uh, but both times failed to penetrate the armor. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I, I uh, luck, big time luck. I needed nine or less on two d six. I really should have been able to punch a hole in a Sherman. Panzerschreck versus frontal frontal armor on a Sherman at point blank range. There should be a burning Sherman there in the streets of Nijmegen. Yeah. So yeah, the British uh, suffered exactly zero casualties in that offensive. Um, <laughs> the Americans not so much. So yeah, I don't know. What did you think of the game? I mean, did you think it played well? Or oh, I thought it played extremely well. Um, I I definitely felt the tension of you know, being against the clock, if you will, you know, having to make, uh, take those objectives by the turn eight, um, you know, and that was kind of a self-imposed deadline. Cause we, you know, at the end of the first gameplay session, we just said, all right, we're going to roll a die. And if it's even, it's going to be eight. If it's odd, it'll be turn nine. And I rolled up, uh, even. So we determined that I had to take the objectives on the bridge by the end of turn eight, or at least the American turn eight, because, you know, I wouldn't be able to move once the Germans played. So um, I thought it, in a lot of ways, it echoed what happened in the actual battle, you know, as far as like the river crossing. Um, I don't know. I didn't, I don't think I lost a lot of units in the actual river crossing. It was once I landed is when I started taking the casualties more than the actual river crossing. So that, so that didn't mirror you know, that's it, actually true. Yeah, I, yeah. I didn't take out as much as I thought I would in the river crossing. Um, that 88 up there on the, um, th- there was an actual 88 position. Um, it's marked on, you know, historical maps or whatever. So I put it in it's pretty much where it was supposed to. Um, it, it actually, I think it scored two misses. Mm-hmm. It, had, it wound up with a total of four shots before you dropped a smoke screen in front of it. And out of those four shots, two of them were just straight out misses. So there should have been two, four boats sank instead of, uh, instead of two um and then the mortars i think 
two of them drifted my mortars. So yeah, there probably should have been more American casualties coming across the river. But then, yeah, you're right. Once there should be a time limit in that game somewhere. There has to be. Uh, number one, that's how Valorant Victory works. And number two, um, as we saw, the American forces, once they get across the river, outnumber the Germans three, if not four to one. And they're like some of the best troops in the American army. Whereas the German troops on the other side of that river, there are some Waffen-SS guys over there. But even the Waffen-SS at this point are not what they used to be. Yeah. And a lot of these units were like training. There were some engineers there. Uh, there were some people kind of being put together into a unit, you know, patched together, walking wounded, things like that. Um, the German army is, is very threadbare by this part of the war. And we reflected it in our game. So once the Americans make it across, they're going to win. I mean, did you ever have the feeling that I was going to stop you from reaching yes, that bridge? I actually or, did. Really? Uh, yeah, I actually okay. did. Um, I want to say it was turn five. Okay, well, let, when... let me let me. Let me, let me maybe uh, modify the question. Did you think I was going to stop you from reaching the bridge? Yes. Or I was going to stop you from reaching the bridge in time? Uh, I actually would say yes to both. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, during, I think it was turn five, uh, when I was getting ready to cross the imaginary kickoff line for yep. the British armor, yep. um, I felt like those SS troops that were in that set of woods just north of the bridge there, Yep. Uh, when I would have to sprint across basically open territory, there was nothing left. Yeah. Um, I had no artillery missions left, which I had planned. I figured I need to get as many troops across as possible. So I, I unloaded all my artillery fire missions in the first couple turns. And um, I, I just felt very exposed. And I figured this is where I'm going to get bogged down. You know, it, it, whether I lose units or I'm going to get everybody pinned and have to rally, and so I was concerned that was the spot. Yeah, um, I did check that part of the map. There are aerial photographs of the area uh, several times, you know. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, there that big open field is there. Um, I don't know specifically how um, Cook dealt with that specifically. We do have um, Howell Company Commander's detailed battle report uh, written in 1947. I can go through that again. Uh, that's pretty much blow by blow. Like this guy pulled a pin on a grenade and then he did, um, I'm being a little, you know, I'm, I'm overstating the case a little bit there, but it's a very, very detailed, um, after action report of the actual, you know, uh, assault itself. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the Germans were never, we're, we're never going to stop you. It was whether or not they were going to, you know, they did have a chance to stop you in time. And that's when we saw the rush where you were, I could actually kind of hear it in your voice. It was like, I only have like a turn and a half left. I have to get to that bridge right now. And that's when we have Cook's two assaults. I think Howe Company went north into the southern part of Lend, and then um, uh, Cook himself kind of turned southeast and went for that mortar pit on the foot of the bridge right in front of the tunnel yeah. that goes under the northern part of the bridge. And, uh, I mean, some of your units were valorous, so you were able to absorb casualties. Uh, basically when you're valorous, you like get to ignore a certain number of casualties, but, um, yeah, the casualties in those two assaults were pretty steep. That was almost as bad as the river crossing. And that I don't think happened, uh, historically, uh, the, the American assault on the, in our game, the American assault on the bridge itself, like within 50 yards of the bridge where mm -hmm. was, um, was, was pretty gruesome. Yeah. Um, that I was not expecting. 
uh, yeah, so maybe getting over the river a little bit, uh, a little bit, I mean, it was still pretty bad, but I think I took out like maybe a quarter of your force instead of, you know, the historical 30 or 40%. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think I made up for that once you uh, actually had to assault the bridge itself. There was a 20 millimeter there, auto cannon that was able to take some opportunity fire. Uh, there were some German SMG squads. There were some gun crews that had like, you know, Mauser K98s or whatever uh, for self-defense. And, um, yeah, they were able to do some damage, I think. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it was it was good. I mean, when you can get a game that, you, you know, some games you get to a certain point and it's like, oh, it's easy, downhill, it just, you're pretty much just rolling dice just to roll dice, and the game's pretty much over, you just, yeah. you know. But this one, it really went down to the last, the very last turn, um, you know, to the very last set of dice rolls. So it really kept your attention, and it was a really good game. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. So I I tried to spread my forces out a little bit to kind of give you an idea or confuse you a little bit as to what my actual plan was. We all know what the plan is, is to take the bridge, but how was I going to do it? Because I I could have bypassed that fort totally and – Yes. And not have worried about it because, yeah, they may have gotten a couple shots here and there, but for the most part, it would have left them ineffective. But my plan was if I had to, I would take the fort and then come up the road down through Lent, you know, re support the other units. Yeah. Yeah. So, but then I realized I was running out of time. So I just, at that point, I was just capturing objectives. I would figure I'm going to capture every objective I can. And I think I got them all. Uh, yes, so. absolutely. Oh, yeah, the game required it. Yeah. yeah. Um, the one that we were kind of leaving off the table was that fort, because uh, number one, I was like, oh, you know, this this game, this scenario hadn't been play tested. Uh, so I was like, eh, maybe I shouldn't demand that or the game or whatever. And then also, the more I read about it, the more I think some of those northern positions were actually. So what you had was Howe and Ida Company of the uh, 504th, along with C Company of uh, 307th. That was the first wave of the landing second wave of the landing was George company. That's pretty much the rest of Cook's battalion. Uh And they came over in the second wave with what boats were left. I think 13 out of 26 boats and the river was crossed again. Although by now nobody, no one was shooting at them. And then they had to land and go northward and hit some of those Northern more, more northerly positions. And then the very close of the day, the rest of first battalion, so three more companies, Abel Baker, Charlie companies landed. So pretty much triple your force is now across the river, and they're pushing north and uh, northwest um, against some of the other German units that are way in the deep backfield, way past the scope of this game, obviously. Yeah. Um, so I'll, that's the reason I was kind of like, uh, should I eat? should we kind of take that 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 small uh, fort off the table as far as an objective X, a required objective X. Um, but then you took it anyway. So I was like, oh, okay, I guess it was required. <laughs> there you go. Yep. But yeah, you got all three hexes on the bridge. Um, there was a German side hex, a British side hex. And then of course the, the, the hex in the middle. So there were three bridges there, uh, three hexes there for the bridge. And then the fifth, I always try to put an odd number of, of objective hexes in there. And then, of course, the other objective hex was the actual landing site itself. There was a, like a, a building on the uh, near the landing zone. I was like, okay, you take that building, and that kind of signifies that you have the landing zone secured. 
take the landing zone, cover your north flank, hit the bridge, take one, two, three objective hexes on the bridge. Although the paratroopers weren't really supposed to take all three objective hexes on the bridge, the Grenadier Guards were supposed to wake up and realize there was a war on. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that wasn't their fault. Number one, uh, you know, both he stood tall uh, there in the, the, the southern part of Nijmegen. Yeah, I could a not lot, move you guys with the tanks. A lot a lot better than they did historically. Uh, historically, those Germans on the south bank folded up like a house of cards. Huh. But uh, that didn't happen here. And um, so, yeah, the, all five objective hexes were required by the Allies, but the British were supposed to take at least two of those. Um, and it wound up the Americans had to take all five. Although, again, because of the way the Germans defended and because of, you know, when you activated the British by crossing that phase line, it, you know, the British kind of got like a little bit of a late start. Um, it wasn't really their fault, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, they, they definitely underperformed in this game and the Americans pretty much had to carry all the water. Although, I, British friends on the site, we, we did not plan it that way. That's just how it worked out. Hmm. Yeah. It was good. It was really good. So, um, which leads me to another question. If, if somebody wanted to do the same scenario in a miniatures-based game, what would scale and what rule set would you feel would be most appropriate to do that? Um, okay, if someone wants to do that in miniature, um, number one, kiss your wife goodbye. You're not going to see her for about six months. Uh, quit your job and uh, put an extra wing on your house. Because in order to do that game justice, you're going to need two kilometers of terrain. So um, to answer your question less sarcastically or whatever, uh, I would definitely go, for, as far as like the popular games that are out there or whatever, I would definitely go for Flames of War simply because it's usually considered the biggest. When you want to do a big World War II game in miniature, Flames of War is usually the go-to. Um, battle group is where you want to go for the strict history, but this will be a big game to do in battle group. Holy crap. It, it would be possible, but this is going to be like Pierce and like 10 of his friends uh, setting up a gigantic table at, you know, Bovington Tank Museum somewhere. And, yeah. you know, they'd basically be, it'd almost be a small convention. Um, but you could theoretically do it in battle group. Bolt action or any other 28 millimeter game, that that would be crazy. You're talking about two full companies of Americans. That's You're going to need at least 300, if not 400, American figures. Now, make that more because you've got Charlie Company 307 there as well. You're going to need at least 500 American counter uh, Amer- American miniatures. And those WYSIWYG games are one-to-one. So, you know. And, yeah, then you need the Germans. And you need the Irish Guards for the tanks. And you need the Grenadier Guards to attack with the tanks on the other side of the river. You've got German 88s, or a German 88. You've got German two-centimeter guns. you got five-centimeter motors. Um, yeah, I would go with uh, I would go with Flames of War if you wanted to do it in miniature. And then you'd have to come up with some sort of a shorthand system. Because technically, a two-kilometer-wide board is 2,000 meters divided by 100. You need a 20-meter table. That's about 70 feet. Yeah. Um, to do it in true scale. Obviously, you can't really do that. You'd have to come up with some sort of a shorthand system. Um, this was a tough one even for Valorant Victory. Valorant Victory, was it's, it's really too big. Panzer Leader would have worked, but Panzer Leader almost has the opposite problem. It's kind of It would be a very small battle, uh, Panzer Leader. You could do this in Panzer Leader in about an hour. But it would lack a lot of the detail. It's it's, a, it's almost too small a game for Panzer Leader to, to handle. Valorant Victory was almost too big. I think we pulled it off, but you know, six-hour Valorant Victory game is way bigger than normal. 
Um, this was a weird one. It was kind of like in, in between scales, so to speak. Um, but if you wanted to do it in miniature, I would stick with uh, with uh, Flames of War with two possible options. You could either just do the landing or you could just do the assault on the bridge. And I think that could be a lot more manageable. You could have like a, a big, um, I don't even know how long Nijmegen Bridge was. It was long. It was the longest tiered suspension bridge or tiered arch bridge. I'm sorry, tiered arch bridge in Europe at the time. Um, but you could sort of set up that bridge and you could have the Grenadier Guards attacking from one side and the Americans attacking from the other side. Germans trying to hold the jaws open on both ends of the bridge. Tight time limit because the Germans are going to find that break in the wire very shortly. And once they do, you know, that's it. <laughs> that bridge goes up in a big mushroom cloud yeah. and, everyone, and everyone loses. Um, but, uh, yeah, um, I, I would, so that would be a challenging one to do with terrain was because you'd have to build that bridge in the Northern suburbs of Nijmegen and the Southern parts of Lent. That'd be a very tough table to build. It would look amazing. Um, but you could do that one. You get the tunnel going underneath the Northern shoulder of the bridge. Like we see in the movie that was there historically, or, uh, if you wanted to do it a little easier, you could just do the assault across the river. Um, Although that would be tough because, again, the Americans are going to lose, you know, upwards of 40% of their forest just coming out of the water. And um, then it's almost like a beach assault. You know, you have to clear those German positions and artillery points yeah. on the northern bank of the river. Um, but those, I think those games in Flames of War would be more manageable, either one or the other. If you wanted to do both, um, you know, pack a lunch. Uh, or, or you could have, like, the two tables being, like, connected. Like, here's the assault table across the river or whatever. And then any American unit that leaves the, uh, what would that be? That would be the Eastern side of the assault table or the beach landing, the, the riverbank landing table. Okay. Now they have to sit between boards for a turn. And then on the next turn, they get to enter the Western side of the, ta of the, um, of the uh, beach. Of, I'm sorry, of the, uh, the bridge table. And you wind up with another, basically two linked games going at once yeah. that sort of affect each other. You could do something like that. Yeah, there are ways, there's always a way, there's always a way to get around it. But, um, in miniature, it, it would be challenging in Valor and victory. It would be challenging. The scale is basically 28 millimeter. Uh, you know, WYSIWYG is like your really small, you know, almost role-playing type of skirmish game or whatever. Crank it up to, you know, 15-millimeter, 20-millimeter stuff like Flames of War and Battle Group. Then you go to your squad-based Hex Encounter games like Valorant Victory. Then you go up to Panzer Leader. Uh, and then after that, you go God knows where. Um, but it, it was almost between two of those higher levels, what we did. It was a little... I mean, again, we pulled it off, but it was a little big for Valorant Victory. Um... But, you know, hey, we, met, we we pulled it off. I think it went great. Um, I would not suggest this as a beginning a scenario if you're new to Valor and Victory. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Valor-and-Victory.com. Uh, go over to that site. The game is free to print and play. Um, and if, you're, uh, if you've ever been into Advanced Squad Leader or if you're into games like Flames of War or even bolt action. It's infantry focused. It's infantry heavy. Um, you're free of all the problems of, you know, painting miniatures. You can build an army in an afternoon and, you know, play dice with your friends or whatever. And, uh, I, we were talking in an earlier episode about what, what your, what your most recommended game is. Yeah. If you're a miniature player and you, you know, you want to do a really big game, but miniatures are just, it would take you literally a year to build this table and all the miniatures involved for it. Give it a swing in Valor and Victory. It's going to cost you one weekend and zero dollars. 
And um, for that reason alone, if you know if you like it, great. If you don't like it, you've lost basically nothing. Um, it's a great uh, it's a great way to maybe try out a new system at minimal risk and minimal investment uh, to you as a war gamer. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, good game. I definitely highly recommend it. And if you guys have not seen the uh, videos, they're up on Twitch and YouTube, I believe. Yep. Uh, check them out. And I know, Jim, you're, you usually do a recap or summary. On it. You're going to be putting that on OTT, I think? Yeah, I'm going to have to either do a... a, a uh, I'm definitely going to do some kind of battle report. It's going to be on, on, on tabletop at least. Yeah. Um, you know, the usual, like, here's a text, here's a screenshot, here's a text, here's some screenshot. What we've also been doing is, like, video highlights. Uh, I might get around to that. I have some time off coming up, but... Um, those are actually, they're a lot less labor intensive than a, uh, than an op center. Uh, the problem is downloading the original source video. Like I said, one video was four hours and 45 yeah. seconds, yeah. four hours and 45 minutes just to download that from Twitch. is going to take my computer like half a day. <laughs> so that's just, well, to download it and then to port it over into my editing software, that's, that's going to take a while. Um, but I mean, I'd like to do. So. You, you, we put in little bits of music and sound effects and funny jokes and whatever, you know. Um, and those have been pretty, uh, pretty, you know, popular. But that's with like two-hour games and three-hour games. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've never done it really with a six-hour game. We did it with uh, uh, our landings on Gold Beach, which was a nine-and-a-half-hour game, but that was recorded in little bits, um, where the total recording I think was like an hour and a half. Um, so it was a lot easier to download and render than, you know, six hours of video. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> that's, that's going to be a little bit of work, but definitely at least the, the write-up, if not, um, also some video highlights on YouTube and, um, yeah, our other platforms. Awesome. So, um, before we talk about our other main topic, let's do catch up on a little bit of news, uh, uh-huh. stuff that's going on out there. Um, Footsore Miniatures Modern, uh, t- our friend Tim um showing off some 28 millimeter modern british sbs in syria uh for everybody who doesn't know what sbs stands for it's special boat squadron so it's like the would you say the offshoot of the sas the alternate arm of the sas um yeah um, yeah it's they're very similar to the sas except they usually go in via either uh, small craft or even submarines. These guys were actually featured in our Falklands Ops Center episode. Mm-hmm. These were the guys that assaulted um, Pebble Island, I think was SBS. Uh, Delta Squadron, to be to be specific. Of uh, like 22nd SBS, I think. I can't remember. Um, yeah, but I have, quote-unquote, run across these guys before um, in, in, a, in a history and gaming sense. Um yeah, they're basically SAS, except uh, they don't usually, you know, they're not usually, um, they're, they're more amphibious in nature. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure both SBS and SAS can both jump out of a boat and jump out of a plane and jump out of a helicopter. I mean, these guys are some of the most highly trained, you know, soldiers in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, where they tend to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, how they tend to, Hello, you know, actually insert so into yeah. you know, whatever objective area that they're working with the other possible uh, difference between the two and here i'm not even going to try and take a swing at it is uh who owns them so to speak you know uh, are they air force or the army do they belong to the navy royal marine command uh, british command structure is a labyrinth of madness uh, <laughs> don't even try to get involved with that uh i barely understand the american command system so i don't know, i'm even going to try to 
figure out how the British work. But there might be, and maybe someone in the in, in the, our audience knows, there might be another difference. Um, you know, why do you have an SAS and an SBS at the same time? It might be why do you have a U.S. Army and a U.S. Marine Corps kind of a thing. Right. You know, it's slight. They're very similar, slightly different missions, mostly involving how they get there. And then who actually calls the shots as far as how and when they're deployed. Yes, I agree. So uh, these miniatures look really nice. Um, he's got a set of five, uh, you know, they look like your modern military guys. Look like they got some alternate version of an AR, M4. Uh, you know, they're wearing baseball caps and goggles. And so they look really good. They uh, make a nice set for anybody who's looking at them. Uh, up next is uh, Gringo 40s. Has got oh, these some, guys are good. Have some NVA um, minis right now. There's one I'm looking at. He's kneeling in a firing position with an RPG, and he's got Ho Chi Minh sandals on. Um, so I mean, it's a really nice looking miniature. Um, so right now, I think there's a big push for Vietnam miniatures. It's uh, yeah. It's for a while. I remember we did the Vietnam series really recently the 50th anniversary of ted yeah so i it was supposed to roll out in january of 2018 i was trying to find miniatures in like november and december of 2017 and the only reason i bring this up is i was having a hell of a time finding you know decent 10 i'm, I'm sorry a 15 or 20 millimeter um you know um vietnam miniatures i was not ha i did find some eventually but the, you know they weren't the best Pretty much the Amer I won't mention the name of the company because I also can't remember off the top of my head, but the Americans are pretty much World War II Americans with M16s. And it's like, no, that's not right. And then the NVAs, some of the NVA, some of my NVA guys are wearing shorts. I'm like, what jungle did you just crawl out of? Because this isn't Bermuda. You know, why are you wearing shorts? The miniatures weren't the best. I tried to cover up a lot of it with the painting and like taking the, the photographs from a careful angle and a distance or whatever. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I tell you what, if I was to redo that series, there's a lot more options out there for, for good Vietnam miniatures. The, the Vietnam miniatures that I was able to find as little as two years ago was a shallow and brackish pool, you know, as yeah. far as, you know, finding good stuff. But nowadays, there's tons out there. Um, the, I mean, some of it's a little silly. Well, no, I, I won't say silly. Sorry. Some of it is more pulpy, like um, the stuff you find for Black Sun. But even that, they have, you know, look weird war vietnam might not be your thing so here are some regular nva vietcom yeah. u.s army u.s marine corps south vietnamese army etc forces there as well so there's there's a lot out there uh yeah. but pretty yeah you're right i think you're right it's pretty much all of a sudden uh, i mean you do a series on vietnam and all of a sudden people are making miniatures hmm. well, some, uh, some, somebody's, li somebody's <laughs> listening <laughs> and uh no but like like Battlefront's Nam came out that same like that same month. Yeah. Um. And I'm no Battlefront is not checking my feed or whatever. <laughs> you know, not at all. It's called the 50th anniversary of Ted. Everyone's thinking about Vietnam. It's, right. Yeah. So uh, another company, Empress Miniatures, has a similar uh, NVA troop, uh, firing an RPG, uh, carrying an SKS rifle. Um, it looks like they're wearing Ho Chi Minh sandals as well. Uh, you know, they've got extra uh, RPG rounds and a carrier on their back. I mean, it's a really nicely detailed miniature. So, I mean, right now, if you're into Vietnam, uh, now would be the time to get some of those, uh, you know, miniatures. So, for 28 millimeter, um, 
what rule set would you go with? I mean, what kind of scenarios do you think would work well for 28 mil since all these companies are pushing out 28 mils? Oh, wow. Uh, I refer you to episode three of our Vietnam series. Yeah. Center. Um, no, but seriously, that's pretty much what it was. <laughs> it was like, here are some of the things, because you know what? I, I kind of came to this conclusion at the end of uh, like a halfway through the Falkland series. I was like, you know what? I, I don't play enough of these games um, to, you know, say, Hey, here's, you know, Arab is really worse. We're going to, uh, you know, Jim Ariskin or whatever is going to, you know, recommend a bunch of games for people to play. And then they're going to play those games. They're not going to be very good. And, you know, so I was like, look, I am more into the, um, uh, I'm not an expert in anything, but I'm more knowledgeable in the actual history of some of these conflicts than I am in the war games that attempt to replicate them. Yeah. So here's what, and most of the games I play, I design myself, or at least I design the scenarios or I house rule them to the point of past recognition or whatever, because I like my games to be a certain way. I'm very, you know, history focused, not so much as some people, but I, I try to be pretty history focused. So, but the point of that Vietnam series was, was look, I'm not going to recommend a bunch of, you know, Charlie Don't Surf, Flames of War, Nam, maybe Bolt Action's coming out with Nam, who knows what, you know, all these different things. Rather than, you know, pretty much stand up here like I'm, you know, on the QVC or something, you know, telling you a bunch of stuff to buy. Mm -hmm. Here are some of the historical things that you run across in Vietnam, and here's how you might want to replicate them in, uh, you know, in, in, if you're playing a Vietnam, you know, either miniature game or any kind of a game. Here's how you play it in Vietnam. And um, so what kind of scenarios are we talking about here for Vietnam? All right, well, 28 millimeter first off is a good place to start. I know I'm not normally a fan of 28 millimeter, but um, Vietnam was predominantly an infantry army or an infantry war. Uh -huh. And there are two main battlefields in Vietnam. This isn't exclusive, but there's obviously the jungle or very close forest and uh, a lot of city fighting, which yeah. a lot of people forget. In either case, you're talking about very short lines of fire. So infantry combat, short lines of fire. It sounds like 28 millimeter heaven to me. So 28 millimeter is a good place to start. Um, we talked about in that episode, the true nature of asymmetrical warfare. You've got to have your games asymmetrical. And I'm not talking about what most people think of when they think of asymmetrical. Asymmetrical is a lot more than just few against many. Mm -hmm. Um, it's literally the two sides are playing different games. You want to try to have a game with no objectives. You want to have a game with truly asymmetric victory conditions, and, you know, I don't know how long you want to talk about this kind of stuff. Again, it's, you know, it's a lot of it's in that episode. Um, and you want, uh, you want, you want the, uh, the, the, especially the Viet Cong to be able to deny battle to the point where, and I'm not suggesting that your game turn out this way, cause it would be kind of a, of a dull, boring afternoon, but you want that option from a design standpoint, work towards the idea that if not a shot is fired, the yep. Viet Cong win. The Viet Cong could technically run out the clock, have not a shot fired, and that is a ball out of the park Viet Cong victory. The NVA, maybe not so much. The Viet, the NVA was a more conventional force, and especially up in first core sector, they did have to stand and die and defend certain points, especially high terrain in the hill country, out toward the ocean border, you know, all the Marine artillery fire bases out there. Out there, the war didn't boil down to a little bit more of the conventional real estate, right. you know, kind of thing. But um, once you get south of that, 
it's much more about psychology. You have to make sure you have casualty evacuation in your game. You have to make sure you have civilians in your game. Um, we talk about maybe, hey, if you want to have the press in your game or the media, you have a camera crew on the table and have the Viet Cong player control that unit so that that camera crew is always in the absolute worst place for the American player. Victory points might be worth more if it takes place within sight of the camera crew. Whereas if the American pulls some, you know, shady shit over here on the other side of the table yeah. where the camera crew isn't, maybe it's only half victory points if, you know, but again, we also put the warning in the episode, this is fun and it's realistic and it adds a whole new nuance to the game. It does lead to some dark places because now the American player is, I can get away with stuff if the news crew isn't here. I don't know how that mortar shell wound up in that hooch and killed all those civilians, but there was also an RPG crew in there or technically a B-40 crew, rocket crew in there. Hey, uh, they blew themselves up. We don't know. You know. <laughs> Did you get it on your camera? You know, it leads to some goofy places. So you, you yeah. want to be careful of that. But um, there's all kinds of scenario ideas. In part two, we talk about all the different kinds of terrain. Vietnam is not, not, not one big jungle. Okay. There's yeah. all kinds of different areas or whatever. Um, if you are a World War II player, which I think most, you know, people would start off in World War II if they're into this kind of miniature gaming, consider something in two core sector. Sorry. Uh, yeah, a two-core sector. Um, that's where some of the earliest battles took place. I drank uh, Operation Starlight. This is the Pleiku Highlands. The reason I suggest that is um, you might have an easier time with terrain. Uh-huh. There, you're on again, you're on the Pleiku Highlands. It's still in the same latitude as the rest of Vietnam, obviously, but the elevation is much, much higher. The whole country is pretty much like an extra couple hundred feet up and the air is drier. The air is a little cooler. The, if you look at the, um, if you watch, oh, I know you've seen this movie, but if you take another look at, um, we were soldiers, they're not really in a jungle. That looks like a regular, like almost North Carolina forest. Right. You know, it's, it's, that's actually pretty accurate. Um, so if you have a bunch of like terrain for France or Russia or who knows where else, um, but you don't have a whole bunch of palm trees. You haven't made that inevitable trip down to the pet store, but we all have um, for a whole bunch of stuff out of, uh, you know, their, their fish tank section. That's like what almost any jungle person does eventually. Uh, I want to play a miniature game in a jungle. Well, the, your first step is to go down to the pet store, go to where they sell their aquariums and buy like eight pounds of uh, plastic plants out of the fish tank or whatever. Um, it's a fast way to get started. But if you don't want to do that, yeah. We, those two episodes, four uh, out of the four episodes, those two episodes, episode two talks about the different areas and the different kinds of combat that took place in the different areas. If you want tunnels, here's where you go. If you want the deltas and the riverboats, here's where you go. If you want the helicopters, helicopters, believe it or not, weren't everywhere. Here's where you go. If you want Marines, here's where you go. If you want Anzacs, uh, the Australian task force, they were not everywhere by any stretch of the imagination. They were in a very, very, very small part of the war. Here's where you go. Big urban combat, here's where you go. So as far as like your question about scenarios, check out part two of that series. That's going to tell you where the different scenarios take place. And then part three says, here's the kinds of things that happened specifically in Vietnam. And here are some ideas on how to uh, recreate it on your tabletop. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks, Jim. Um, so I've been on the sideline uh, chatting with Tim uh, from 
Footsore Miniatures, and he's going to join us in two weeks for our next recording. So awesome. uh, we'll get him on and we'll get to see what's going on with Footsore and now that he's uh, part their U.S. representative. Uh, just a couple little outs and ends. I wanted to give another shout out to Andy Zek. The dude is a painting machine. He posted in, oh, no. <laughs> in um, Facebook He on his paint, miniature painting page. He did an, uh, a Humvee. It's spectacular. I mean, it's. I think it's the Spectre Miniatures one, and it's spectacular. Uh, the detail, the realism, it's just amazing. He does an awesome job of painting up, and he, you know, he cranks that stuff out. And then lastly, say, he, he's usually like like us. Most of the stuff I've seen him do, I haven't seen everything he does, but he normally does um, like figures and individual soldiers, right? Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't normally do vehicles. Not typically, but um, right now he's done this, and if you're following his page, he also is painting up the ships from the uh, new Warlord game that's coming out. Um, what's it called? Blood and Sails or whatever it is. Uh, okay. So, yeah, he's been painting up quite a few of their ships as well. Um, and then lastly, Gringo40 again has put out a... Um, Mutt Jeep. If for anybody who's been in the military, you know what I'm talking about. It's the Vietnam uh, M151. Uh, we they called it a Mutt. Uh, it was just basically the Army Jeep, but just a modernized version of what you saw in World War II, um, all the way up to what the mid 70s, late 70s when they started replacing it with Humvees, early 80s, depending if you were the Marines, because um, you guys still had Jeeps until the mid 80s, didn't you? For the most yeah, part. like the old, like the old M8 Willys Jeeps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, they haven't – If so if you're looking to really – I'm telling you what, Gringo 40s right now is just turning out the, the Vietnam stuff. So it looks really great. So I, I haven't seen the NVA guys you're talking about, but I was – I mentioned this earlier. We were talking – we were looking at some of their, uh, their U.S. Army, U.S. Marine Corps miniatures. And, you know, when you can tell in a 28-millimeter miniature whether that's an M16 or an M16A1 by where the forward assist is on the bolt carrier group – yeah, that's some serious detail. It is. <laughs> you tremendous. know, they they, they they have that old uh, three pronged muzzle suppressor that the early M16s had. That yep. goofy looking. Yeah, it's it's really really. Um, I don't have any uh, myself because I'm not usually 28 millimeter, but just from what I've seen, you know, around the web, they are some really really nice looking miniatures. So they are really good. Yeah. So check out Gringo 40, um, Empress Miniatures, and check out Andy Zek's miniature page. So let's transition, and then obviously Footsore Miniatures as well. Um, and also, we have to mention a very important page for you guys to check out, and that's our supporters over at Black Sight Studio. So if you're looking for pre-painted terrain of all different genres, and they have uh, 15 mil right now and 28 mil, uh, make sure you check out their page, Black Sight Studios, and um, check out their terrain. They're sponsoring our show, and we appreciate their help. Uh, so let's do a transition. We've talked about good old Hex Encounter games. We've talked about yep. miniature games. Um, Ralph's not here to talk about video games because I thought maybe he'd jump on. I actually uh, just downloaded Squad last night, which is a new-ish military mil sim first-person shooter. Uh, I'm based on a recommendation. I have to check it out. It's It seems a little arcadey to me. It's not in the same arena as Arma 3, but I'll see what it's like. Um, so outside of those, let's talk about RPG. And you're okay. working on an RPG project right now, and you're actually going to be airing that later today as the time of we're recording. So why don't you take us through it? Okay. Um, let's see. Where do I start? Uh, yeah. Um, 
on on tabletop and here on sit rep, I'm usually um, you know a, a war gamer uh, kind of a guy. Um, through most of the 1990s and pretty much all of the first uh, decade of the 2000s, the aughts or whatever, uh, I was very very heavily into uh, extremely heavy actually into role playing games. Um, we've run some very very long and very detailed, very complicated. Uh, uh, role-playing chronicles, uh, campaigns, whatever you want to call them. Um, and, uh, you know, the I kind of got out of it for two main reasons. Um, number one, my group, you know, tends, I mean, I always, I've always like, you know, had a high turnover rate in my groups, you know, people leave, people come in, people leave, people come in, people get married, people move away, get a new job or whatever, you know? Um, so I'm always losing people and I'm always trying to gain new people. And it got to a point where I lost a lot more people than I was picking up. And I was having a very difficult time keeping a group together. So finally I just said, you know, what the hell with world, world, you know, role-playing games, some reconnections have been made recently, uh, with some people and they're really, really pressuring me to get back into role-playing gaming. I'm like, I, I guys, I'm part of a podcast group now. Um, you know, I write articles on these sites. I, I don't really have time to get back into role-playing gaming. Also, you know, I got, I still have kind of a bad you know, taste in my mouth or whatever from role-playing games. They're still uh, talking about it. Uh, we were going to run role-playing games for modern moderns here on uh, SITREP uh, a little while back. Yep. And, uh, you know, you know, things happen. So that didn't really come through. So, you know, there's been, you know, a bit of a void left there. And uh, people on, on tabletop up to and including uh, Warzan have been, uh, or Warren, you know, uh, have been asking me a lot about uh, doing some sort of role-playing game. So, um, yeah, uh, I am dipping my toe back into, uh, RPGs. Um, and as such, I am designing a role-playing game system that I am tentatively, this is more of a working title called HK Ops, Hunter Killer Ops. It's kind of a cheesy title, but it's, I'm literally just, it's, it's, it's a placeholder at the moment. Uh, modern military, uh, tactical wargaming, I'm sorry, modern military tactical RPGs, um, and we're keeping this uh, very uh, slicked down. I, I, I've played some very, very good modern RPGs over the time, over the years, or whatever. Um, their problem is that the realistic RPGs, you know, where you get shot and you know you bleed out and you have internal damage and this that, and the other thing, and oh, am I carrying 380, you know, ammunition in my pistol? Is that uh, you know hollow point? Is that uh, you know, who knows what, is that buck or slug in your shotgun? It, you know, oh my God. You know, it's, <laughs> it gets way too much. And I understand why they want to do that because most role, not most, but a great deal of role-playing games out there are either fantasy or the sci-fi genre. Right. And as such, they have this extra layer of complication on there. There's some supernatural element. There are special powers. There's spells. There's laser guns. Who knows what, you know, there's all this other stuff on there. And if you're playing a grounded in reality, you know, modern military game, um, or even like a World War II role-playing game or anything like that, there's none of that. So there's this void left. If you approach the basic tactical stuff with that same level of detail, you're going to have half a game. Because the other half is missing. You don't have fireballs or chain lightning or werewolves or whatever, you know. You're going to need, you know, something else. So that's why some of these games, I think, kind of went over the top with the uh, tactical detail. I'm trying to get a very happy balance between the two because I'm designing this for like online play you know the group that we play with every weekend with war games we're going to try and and bring some new thing into modern military role-playing games as well um 
our Sunday streams have been a big success um, with the uh, online, you know, computer-based, you know, uh, wargaming, Hex Encounter gaming. But again, Hex Encounters, you know, eventually get old, you know, for everybody, even me. And we've been pretty much doing, for moderns, we've been doing, there's been some Air War C-21 and some some Naval Command stuff, but mostly it's been Panzer Leader, back to Valor and Victory, Panzer Leader, Valor and Victory, Panzer Leader, Valor and Victory. Yeah. Long story short, take a shot. I'm just trying to get our first... I'm trying to get a third choice out there. So um, I have a lot of game systems that I'm really, really, I'm, we're not, I'm not, obviously we're not going to sell this or anything. So there's a lot of war game, uh, role-playing games out there that I'm really kind of uh, drawing a lot of um, inspiration from. Um, Millennium's End, that's a game from God knows when. I'll put it to you this way. Millennium's End is a game that came out back in the 90s when the end of the millennium was the dark, mysterious future. So that tells you how old this game is. Um, <laughs> um, it was going to be like, what's gonna, the world going to be like in 2000? Here's a game to help you imagine. We're like, dude, I need a game to help me remember what 2000 was like. Um, so we're doing that. Uh, some of the old original White Wolf um, storyteller system back in the, uh, they first rolled it out with uh, Vampire the Masquerade, believe it or not, in 1991. Um, obviously, we're not doing any vampires or any kind of supernatural stuff, but there's certain DNA in the base system that I think is really good. Uh, it's never let me down, and I've used it for everything. I've used that for every, as one of the most adaptable role-playing systems I've ever seen. Um, and it's, if, if, if you can count to five, you know how to play that game. You know, it's, it's literally, you add two numbers and from one to five, you come up with a new number between two and 10. That's your dire pool. And you roll that and you see if you succeed or fail. Uh, we're not using that wholesale, but we are drawing some inspiration from that. Uh, we have a bunch of schools, uh, for skills. The skill system is going to be a little bit more complicated than uh, storyteller system is because, again, we're not having any supernatural abilities in this, obviously. And we're kind of drawing it up to where we can use it either as a formal military. You're like, you know, you're actually like an operator uh, in an elite force uh-huh. um, or a PMC. Uh, we want this to be a role playing game. So, role playing games have to be military role playing games are a lot tougher than most people think Yeah, for a number of reasons. If you play it right, military role-playing games, everyone's got to be from the same country. Let's face it. Most people have to, most characters have to be male. It's tough to play a female character in a realistic military role-playing game. Not impossible, but it's, you're, it's, it's a corner case. And, um, the whole idea of player agency sort of flies out the window because in the military, you take orders. You know, you get told where to go. There's never a tavern scene. There, <laughs> there may be a briefing room scene where you're told what you're going to do, but you don't get to, you know, to climb the mission if you don't want to. And um, once you have a group together, um, somebody in that group is the party leader. I mean, there's always a party leader in role-playing games, but here the party leader is the officer in charge. There is no argument. Yeah. Um, there, if there is, it's, you know, mutiny or whatever. And, you know, so some people who are more used to like more traditional role-playing games, you know, where there's a lot more player agency involved, player agency is the one thing you never want to take away from players. That's like sin one-on-one. Again, I've played, I've run role-playing games for 20 years. People used to get on airplanes and take personal vacations or whatever to play in my role-playing. I know what I'm doing when it comes to role-playing games. Um, I haven't done it in a while. I will admit I am rusty as hell. 
But um, I know one thing you never do is take away player agency. You never want to railroad the players. And that's tough to do in a military role-playing game. So we have military actual you know, units as an option, PMCs as an option. PMCs, obviously, you can be anyone from any country, you know, any uh, background, any gender, any whatever, because you're part of a, of a private company now, obviously. Mm-hmm. You can still have all the same skills. Um, and then we're also going to play around with the idea of a post-apocalypse where really all the rules fly out the window and you can really do whatever you want because you're one of the last people on earth because reasons, uh, depending on your background. Um, there, uh, the idea of advanced training and a good equipment is going to be the challenge. Not so much, you know, where you take your orders from. Um, it's going to be hard finding ammunition for that Barrett Mala 82A1 that you've been carrying around and you love so much. You know, when you fire your last bullet, go good luck finding new ones. Um, you know, because, you know, not too many people are making that particular high grade, high, you know, tolerance, you know, ammunition anymore. Um, but yeah, so we've got, uh, it's not just tactical. Uh, we have, you know, investigation schools, interaction schools, social schools, technology, um, medicine, field operations, you know, different university degrees or whatever that your character can follow up. So, you know, we're, we're looking for, this is where we get back to that storyteller system DNA. It's a very well, we're trying for a very well-rounded game, mm-hmm. um, where it's, uh, you literally make up a person that happens to be in a situation. You're not making up a, you know, soldier template 01-A, you know, here's my MOS, here's my uh, my training package, here's my weapon down to the, you know, powder grain of my bullets or whatever. Okay, what's your name? Uh, uh, Bill Smith, um, I guess, I don't know. What's your rank? Uh, I, have, I don't know. What, what are the ranks in the army? You know, it's, it's not going to be like that. We're, we're making up people and putting them in this situation is going to be the kind of byword and we're pretty much hoping to expand the people who are you know the, the user base so to speak or the audience i should say we're trying to expand the audience of people who enjoy our sunday streams and by extension sit rep where it's not just you know old veterans and grognards talking about you know the right. exact uh, you know <laughs> the exact way you know the vol river assault you know really went down we're also going to be talking about hey you know you ever wanted to be like a special forces badass or whatever you know, like my girlfriend likes to play role-playing games and she's always kind of shied away from, you know, military role-playing games because, you know, you know, it's, she, she likes to play someone that's like her. So she, yeah. you know, so here she's going to be able to play a PNC if she wants. Um, so this is so new. Like I, I, it's like the, the primer is barely dry on this thing yet. Um, I created this, the, the character sheet last night and some of the initial playing pieces. I made up my mind. I was going to do this on Friday, Two days ago, one day ago, I designed the character sheet. That's complete. One day ago, I created some of the initial playing pieces or whatever, so we could play like on an actual, you know, top-down screen kind of a display. And then um, I also sent the template character sheet over to a friend of mine in Australia. That's our supporter, Dylan LSR2590. He's already created two characters and sent them back to me. So less than 48 hours after I made up my mind to uh, to do this, we have designed a system. We are going to play test the core fundamentals of this system, and we're going to have dice bouncing off the table within 48 hours. Excellent. I am yeah. so excited. Yeah, grass does not grow under these feet. Nope. Um, I might crash and burn, but I'd rather <laughs> crash and burn and then go try something else um, than, uh, you know, 
think about it and think about it. Maybe we'll do it. And then, and then it never comes about. Yeah. So yeah. Like Justin says around on tabletop fail fast. Yeah. We are going to, we are going to either succeed or fail fast in about um, three more hours. So I'll let you know how that goes. <laughs> It'll have already happened by the time this plays. So yeah. we'll see, we'll see, uh, we'll see how it goes. Fantastic. That sounds great. Um, I am definitely interested in joining in on a future session. Um, you know, once you got the bugs, or I can even help, you know, play test whatever you need from me. Um, yep. So I am definitely interested in that. That sounds really cool. Uh, I'll try and drop in on some of the video today. Um, sure. So we'll see how it goes. Anything else before we close out the show today, Jim? Uh, no, I'm I'm super busy because I'm going to be yeah. kind of out of town next week. So I'm I'm really hitting it hard last week and this week because awesome. after that I'm going to be off the grid for about a week. But then uh, yeah, obviously yeah. I'll be back. All right. Well, to everybody out there, we thank you for joining us on this episode of the Sit Rub Podcast. Um, to our Patreon supporters, we definitely thank you and uh, look for some video uh, upcoming. Possibly some video gameplay on Tuesday night and Thursday. And obviously we do present arms. I'll be doing some hobbying. And uh, I think I'll be building the war pig from um, Modern Billet. Nice. So, That's going to be great. Yeah. So we'll get that baby put together. Um, and then, like I said, Tim from uh, Footsore Miniatures will be joining us at our next show to talk about what's new with uh, Footsore Miniatures Moderns. And... Uh, we will see you all then. Until the meantime, thank you very much. And a big thank you to all our subscribers, Patreon supporters, and especially to Black Sight Studios. Until the meantime, this is G and with Jim, and we will see you guys later.